0: It's February 5th, 1987. And my home group is the West Portland Group in Portland, Oregon. And uh, very grateful to do this. What's that? Okay, can you hear me okay? My name's Chris, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> uh, very grateful to do this. Um, I don't know if anybody's going to get anything out of uh, what I have to say but I know that when I do this and share my experience with the idea that it may help somebody else, that my spiritual life's enlarged and I get something out of it. So for all those that made it possible for me to come and talk, I appreciate it and i uh, very grateful for that. Uh, general way, what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like today. Um, I drank for 11 years, and for whatever reason, it progressed very rapidly. I was, uh, just to kind of summarize my drinking, I I uh, was arrested 14 times for alcohol-related arrests. I was in two treatment centers and detoxes and hospitals, not for alcohol poison, poisoning or drinking, but from alcohol withdrawal. I was somebody that, uh, when I came off of alcohol, I had physical symptoms, auditory hallucinations, the shakes, sometimes vis- visual hallucinations. I w- was a daily drinker my entire drinking career until the end where, the last couple years, I was a daily oblivion drinker. And, um, uh, about a year ago, I'll just back up and tell you a little story. About a year ago, I was uh, talking at a meeting like this. And uh, before I went into the meeting, I was, I was kind of going over what I, how I was going to start off. And I uh, and decided I was going to do that by summarizing my drinking. So I was kind of standing outside going, okay, 14 arrests, three DUIs. Uh, I used to wet the bed. And, you know, and uh, after I went through this list of things I did, my head said, you know, maybe you're not really an alcoholic. <laughs> And uh, I recoiled from that thought as uh, from a hot flame, like the book talks about uh, in between steps 10 and 11. However, there was a time in my life where that was exactly the kind of thought that took me to my next drink. That thought that maybe I have some sort of special version of alcoholism. Maybe it's not really, maybe it's not, maybe not alcoholism like what you guys have, but maybe I have uh, an anxiety disorder or... uh, Maybe I have depression or you know something other than just regular alcoholism. And then my mind would just kind of fall into place and then all of a sudden I was drinking again. But as a result of the steps, that kind of thought actually scares me today. And uh, so it was, it was fleeting. Anyway, all those things I just mentioned, however, don't make me an alcoholic. Those are the consequences of my drinking. Uh, what makes me an alcoholic is that all my life I had a sense of being apart from, being different than a feeling of alienation uh, i had a tremendous amount of anxiety for no particular reason i was afraid of people i was afraid of circumstances i was afraid i was the type of person that if i was walking down the street and i was dry i was not drinking and somebody was coming down the other side coming down the street towards me i would cross the street so i would so i would i would avoid eye contact or if i stayed on the same side of the street i would Look down at the ground and hope that they wouldn't say hello to me. I was the type of person that when I wasn't drinking, when I would go past restaurants full of people, that, um, you know, I would cross the street so they couldn't see me in front of the restaurant because when I would walk in front of a restaurant, I could actually hear the people inside the restaurant judging me. And I'd have all the, I'd have all the little conversations that they would have, you know, Jesus, look at that guy, you know, who, who the hell does he think he is, you know, and just, and I know, and just this, series of conversations that, but when I had ten drinks in my system, I could go into a place like that and, uh, you know, I could talk to anybody and do anything. So what makes me an alcoholic is I suffered from all this ism and a certain amount of alcohol made me feel like what I thought everybody else felt like normally. And, uh, the problem with that is that, um, those 10 drinks worked. However, I also had a phenomenon of craving. And once I got to that 10 drinks, I start, I would overdo it. And I would drink to the point of, uh, problems and to oblivion and to blackout and so forth. Early in my drinking career, that was, uh, uh occasionally. In the middle of my drinking career, that was, uh, it was kind of a roll of the dice. Sometimes I could get to that 10 drinks and maintain what those 10 drinks did to me. Other nights, I would, drink to blackout and, and uh, problems. And towards the end, there was no, there was no uh, 10 drinks. Those 10 drinks were fleeting, and I was right into a Bolivian-type drinking. Um, all through my drinking, my drinking uh, career, I had problems right off the bat. I was, uh, I, um, was uh, kicked out of high school as a result of drinking. I ran away from home on a regular basis. Uh, i was a, I was a daily drinker throughout junior high school through high school i mean before school after school and uh and so forth um, <clears throat> I also started a series of trying to control and enjoy my drinking and uh, i would make i was somebody who would uh make all sorts of little plans on how I was going to drink successfully and and uh and and or how I was going to control my drinking or the circumstances that I would allow myself to drink around or the days I was going to drink on and so forth, all of which, none of which worked. I also was somebody who um, all my life and, and throughout my drinking career, I had a great deal of guilt and remorse upon coming to the next day. It just was my natural state. Get up, rehash the night before, guilt, remorse, feel sick, and then do it again. And I did it day after day after day. Um, In the fall of 1985, I had a little conversation with myself, and uh, I said, You know, all my life I've been battling this alcohol, and I've had problems with it, you know, and I'm through. You know, I've sunk to such a place that there's not really any going any lower than this. I mean, I'm a loser, and there's no getting below this, so I'm just going to accept the fact that I'm a drinker. And I'm going to start drinking. No longer am I going to try to control it. No longer am I going to try to put little plans together. I'm just going to drink. And for the next three weeks after I made that decision, I drank to oblivion on a daily basis. I blacked out every night. And and, uh, there's a saying that I've heard that uh, alcoholism is the only fatal terminal disease that has a fun phase. And this was the start This was the start of my fun phase. Um, no job, no responsibilities, drinking to oblivion on a daily basis. Coming to the next day, rehashing the night before, getting back out a few hours later, and drinking the blackout again. And uh, at the end of those three weeks, I remember having a conversation again with myself, wondering, oh my God, am I going to ever be able to stop this? And then the next thought was, I don't care. This is the freest and the happiest I've ever been in my life. And so I kept drinking like that, and I drank drank like that for uh, some time. And soon the problems started mounting again. The arrests, the problems with relationships with people, um, you know, just the sickness and the remorse, and and uh, and just the, the the just the physical sickness that I had. I got to come off these drunks, and uh, you know put aside the guilt and remorse and shame that I lived with, but I just, God, I, it was unbearable. The shakes, and uh, I was an internal shaker. I wasn't a real bad shaker out here, but I could just tr- tremor through the in- through my insides. And I'd have auditory hallucinations. I'd be walking down the street, and, and I'd hear this organ music you know, inside my head, and then behind me I'd hear this, Chris, and I'd turn around and nobody would be there, and it happened a few minutes later, Chris, and I'd look at you know, and then I oh yeah yeah, I'm having a hangover you know i i actually uh i I literally thought that everybody had auditory hallucinations when they had a hangover, I had no idea that that was uh a withdrawal from alcohol, and um Anyway, so once again, I started trying to control and enjoy my drinking, and uh, I was swearing it off on a regular basis. I was putting plans together. I was, I would write out plans, drinking plans, on how I was only going to drink on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night, unless there was this circumstance involved, and so forth. I mean, I would, I'd get done with these plans and start drinking, you know, immediately after. Well, I'll start that plan next week, you know, and um, and I uh, I ended up. Um, in June of 1986, uh, I went out drinking, and I did, again, one more pitiful and incomprehensible and demoralizing act. And I came to in the morning. I was like, oh, my God. I can't believe I did that. I just had a vague picture of what I had done. And I was like, this has got to stop. And I've been drinking so much that... um uh, you know, I just, I knew that I'd go into full-blown DTs if I came off of alcohol, so I, I knew I was going to have to wean myself off, and uh, I was living in a little town in southern Oregon, Ashland. I grew up in Portland, but I was down in Ashland, and I and, uh, decided what I would do is I'd get out on the freeway and hitchhike up to Portland. You know, by this time, I didn't have a driver's license because I had a series of DUIs, and and um, I got out there on the freeway, and, and I hitchhiked up to Portland, and I got up into Portland, and I drank, I don't know, like eight or nine beers to kind of take the edge off that night the next night i drank five beers or something and then the next night i drank three beers and then the next night cold turkey and um and that next night i mean just the the pain of the the withdrawal i just started going nuts and uh i ended up getting into a medical detox and uh, i went it was a it was attached to a treatment center and they kept me in this detox for five days pumping me full of librium and monitoring my blood pressure around the clock and there was these guys that were, you know, I mean, I was like 20 or something at the time. And there was these guys that were like, you know, 50 and 60 and 70 that were seeing snakes coming out of the wall and stuff. And they'd keep them in the detox for two days, and then they'd let them out. And I, I, was, I thought, God, that's odd, you know, that they're keeping me in this detox so long. And these other guys, you know, they're seeing snakes coming out of the wall. Not to mention, I detox, I, I, detox myself for three days before I came into this detox. And then it dawned on me. I know what they're doing. They're they're keeping me in this detox longer than it's necessary just to make me think that I'm worse than I really am, and that this is uh, some sort of conspiracy to get me to go into this treatment center. And uh, and uh, at the end of those five days, they had a uh, in-house physician that gave me a physical, and the, ph- the physician sat down with me, and it was kind of uh, like a. Uh, Reminded me of like a car lot where you you got the salesman and then you got the closer and this physician seemed to be like the closer and she sat me down and said you know you've got liver damage to such an extent that you you're not going to live to see 25. I mean you have a you have a liver of a 40 year old man that's been drinking hard for 25 years or a 50 year old man something like that and uh, and she she said I doubt you'll make it to 25 and you definitely won't make it to 30. And I sat there with a little smile on my face because I knew I knew that this was the Okay, now sign on the dotted line for our treatment center. And, uh, you know, that this was, and I I was probably 10 years sober before I started thinking about it. It's like, they don't do that. You know, that's, uh, (laughs) but maybe there was a problem. (laughs) Um, But anyway, um, I stayed for the treatment center only because my insurance wouldn't cover the detox unless I stay. I stayed for, it's 28-day uh, inpatient, and they kept me in there for 35 days. I got out of the treatment center. Didn't want, did not want to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I had been exposed to it in the uh, treatment center, and it seemed as though the meetings that I had gone to, that the the people who were speaking there, I mean, you know, there was topics like balance, and I would go in, and the people would be going, let's make the topic tonight balance. And I'd sit there and go, balance. I mean, you know, what what does that have to do with me drinking, you know, uh, balance, you know. There was, and the, the point is is that maybe I had selective hearing, maybe not. Looking back, it seems like there was no identification. I didn't identify with anything. And uh, so anyway, I went back up to drinking and, and uh, was uh, drinking. And I, I drank for about nine months or so, seven, eight, nine months after that. And it was the worst drinking of my life. It was, uh, it was that daily oblivion drinking. But my, my tolerance, at one time I used to be able to drink 15 or 16 drinks, and, it, you know, I had a slight slur. I felt good. And now I was sitting down at bars, and on my fourth drink, I'd black out on some nights. Other nights, I'd be on my 20th drink, and I couldn't feel a thing. And it was just this... Uh, there was no consistency in the way that I drank, the, similar to the way I used to drink. Anyway, I... Uh, uh, soon after that, I decided that the, the solution to my problem would be to move up to a logging camp up in Alaska, a dry logging camp. And... Uh, <laughs> I flew into uh, Ketchikan, and I was going to not drink, and I drank on the plane, and I drank in Ketchikan, and I was going to quit drinking once I got to this dry logging camp, because you had to take a float plane ride an hour and a half out in the middle of nowhere on this island, and there was no booze. I got out there, worked for three weeks on this uh, dry logging camp, and um, on the uh, third week this guy showed up, or these two guys showed up with a bottle of something, and they said, do you want a drink? And my head just rapid fire. I said, well, it's been three weeks, I'm probably not an alcoholic. Okay. And I grabbed the bottle, and I tipped it up, and I went gunk, 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 and they grabbed it from me, and they said, hey, we got to make this last. And I, was, I thought we were going to drink the bottle. Now, the problem with that is that um, I was an hour and a half float plane ride away from the nearest liquor, and I had a, probably about an equivalent of four or five drinks in me, maybe three or four drinks, and the phenomenon of craving set in, and I wanted to drink so bad. It was like... Internally, it was like an, you know, an itch that can't be scratched, and I laid there all night just wanting to drink, wanting to drink, wanting to drink. Next morning, I got up, caught a float plane, went into Ketchikan. There's a bar there called the, uh, the Foxtel, which is a notorious drinking bar in Ketchikan. It's like where all the loggers and all the fishermen meet, and they drink and they fight and they knife each other and do all this stuff. And, you know, I was like, I got to go to that place. And, um, and they served uh, booze. If you ordered, like, if you said uh, Jim Beam's, they gave you the bottle. With the glass on top, and that's how you got a drink in the fo'c'sle. I went there with a guy named Dan from uh, my logging camp, and uh, he was the nicest guy in the world. We sat down, and he had probably three or four drinks in him. And uh, he turned to me and said, "So you think you're pretty badass, don't you?" And uh, the night night just erupted from there. I I ended up in jail, and uh, and and I was, a, I, was a, I was a cop fighter, you know, when, when the cops, uh, for some reason I felt safe that when the, when the cops were around, I kind of felt safe to throw punches and to mouth off, and, and uh, so I took a pretty, pretty good beating by the uh, Ketchikan Police Department, and, uh, and they threw me into a holding cell, and I, I'd been fighting the whole way, and they threw me in naked into this holding cell with two other guys, and they threw my jumpsuit afterwards, so... In my uh, drunken stupor, I immediately knew that I was in the middle of Alaska and women were not real plentiful and that I, run, I ran some risk of being in this holding cell. So I walked over to the wall naked and punched it, dropped to the floor, did some push-ups because in my alcoholic mind, I, I knew that it was going to spread through the jail that this tough guy, you know, you know had, uh, you know, and... Uh, and I, uh, I put on my little orange jumpsuit, and I took the lower bunk, and uh, I tried to stay conscious for the night, and I drifted off, and, and uh, next morning I came to, and the guy on the top bunk was hanging over looking at me, and I, was, I looked at him, and I was like, uh, can I help you? <laughs> and, uh, and he said, uh, he goes, my name's Bill, he goes, I'm an alcoholic, and uh, he goes, I've got 30 days sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, and my sponsor has made me come in here and uh, I owe 10 days of jail time and I'm making amends. And I sat there and I was just like, you know, oh my God, I can't get away from these AA people. (laughs) But that was the uh, start of a series of coincidences in my life that ultimately led me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And, um, you know, that... Even though I dismissed that guy in jail very quickly in my head, uh, there was a message there. There was a message there. And, uh, you know, there was a little piece of a seed planted at that moment. Um, they let me go that day. They made me pay a fine. They let me go. And, you know, and I got on a plane in Ketchikan. And the minute that plane took off, I thought to myself, I will never come to Alaska again. Not <laughs> once did I think it was alcohol or alcoholism, but it's Alaska. Um, I came back uh, to Portland and I kind of uh, hung around there for a while. I had a job for three weeks and uh, lost that job as a result of my drinking and uh, moved back down to Ashland. And um, ultimately, uh, I had eight days of jail time that was due in, that uh, I had to uh, do in Southern Oregon. And I went to um, do my eight days and. Um, I got out of the eight days, and I was arrested three days after I did my eight days for drinking. And the Ashland Police Department pulled me aside, and they said, you know, Mr. Clark, they said, you've got a hell of a drinking problem. I mean, you, you know, all the police knew me there. And uh, Ashland's a town about the size of about 25,000 people or so. And and they said, you've got to do something about your drinking problem. You need to go see this guy, Joe F. He's an expert on on alcoholism. Go see this guy. And I knew this guy, Joe. And I was like, yeah, right, right, right. You know, a couple days later, I was uh, walking down the street in Ashland. And in Ashland, there's one of these uh, sidewalk preachers, at least at this time there was. One of these guys that stands on the corner with a Bible and just, you know, kind of spouts scripture to anybody that happens to be listening. This guy's name was Monty. I knew him from jail. And, uh, he, uh, I came walking down the street and, uh, he was standing there with his Bible and he said, you know, something, blah, 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 blah. And I, I was like, hey, Monty, and I kind of went on, and then I, I kind of stopped. I thought, you know what? What he just read was kind of like what the police department said. Somehow it had, you know, seemed to tie into the police department saying, go see this guy Joe F. And I thought to myself, now, if I was one of those AAs who didn't believe in coincidences, I would say, oh, you know, this there's something to this, and I would act on it. And I thought to myself, my next thought was, you know, what if for once in my life I didn't dismiss this type of stuff as being stupid and I didn't dismiss this stuff as, as trivial and I actually did act on it and I thought yeah what do I have to lose I'm going to act on it so I went up to see this guy Joe F and uh, on my way up there I was just like please not Alcoholics Anonymous please Joe went through adversion therapy 10 days couple 2 day follow ups and now his life's perfect and I, I got up to this guy Joe's office and um he invited me in, and you know, of course it was Alcoholics Anonymous, he sat down and he told me his story and he invited me to a meeting. And uh, I did not want to go to the meeting, but out of a sense of obligation, um, I, went, I went. It was a Thursday night Clay Street meeting of, uh, in Ashland, Oregon. It was uh, a singleness of purpose group, it had a primary purpose, it was a speaker discussion meeting where a speaker would talk for like 20 minutes and then they uh, they drew numbers and then the people that numbers called would talk for a few minutes. And they had a habit, if there was somebody there that was new, uh, if they had a topic that was picked, they would dismiss the topic, no matter what what it was, and they'd talk a little bit of what it used to be like, what happened, what it's like now. And all the participants would talk a little bit about that. And I sat in that meeting, and for the first time, as this the speaker talked, and then the participants talked, for the first time I started identifying. It's like, I drank like that. I drank like that. I thought like that. I felt like that. And then there was one guy, uh, his number was called, he was sitting right in front of me, and he stood up. And he told a story about coming out of a blackout and he had a revolver in his mouth. He went back into the blackout and he came to the next morning on the floor with a revolver sitting next to him. And uh, that just, uh, that gave me goosebumps because I had exactly the same thing happen to me. I came out of a blackout and I was holding a, a big knife to myself and I went back into the blackout and I came to the, the next morning with a knife next to me. Although I had, one thing he hadn't done is I killed all the furniture in the house uh, somewhere in the middle of the night too. But, um, but anyway, he had uh, you know, that was a piece of my story. And I heard it from another member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the identification occurred. These guys were talking alcoholism. They weren't talking anything else but alcoholism. And, uh, and I identified. And I came out of that meeting for the first time with a sense of hope. Now, I drank again after that because I didn't keep coming back. But that was the seed that was planted. I knew where to go. I knew where there was people that drank, thought, and felt the way I did, and they were staying sober. Some of them were staying sober for a year, or two years, and some unbelievable amounts of time, like four and five years, and you know. And, um, and so I went out, uh, I, I drank again, I drank for a few days, and on February 4th, of 1987, I made, I, one more time, I was gonna go out and prove that I could drink like a normal person. And my plan was I was going to drink ten drinks, and then I was going to shut it down at about ten or eleven o'clock, come home, get up the next morning, and be like a regular person. And uh, I sat at my house waiting for the guy that was supposed to come to the bar with the bars with me. And I drank nine beers sitting in there waiting before before we even headed out to the bars. Went down to the bars that night, drank. I was. Uh, I remember I was drinking vodka Collins in one bar. I was drinking beer in another bar. I secured a job as a bartender at my favorite watering hole which was Cook's Tavern in Ashland. Only to an hour later, I uh, remember I had that same guy over the bar and I was going to work him over because apparently he had cut me off. And, uh, and um, the cops were called and I found myself in a position where I normally was which was running through people's backyards trying to evade the police. And um, <laughs> And the, and the police caught me. They took me in. They, you know, gave me a good beating. They, uh, um, you know, and, uh, and it didn't matter this time. I mean, I did not fight. They put me, you know, they, they cuffed me. They hit my head on the top of the car as they put me in gently. And, uh, and then they sat, you know, they'd accelerate and slam on the brakes so I'd hit the plexiglass the entire way to the thing. Now, normally I would spew obscenities and I would, you know, tell them to, you know, pull over and all this. I didn't do anything. I just sat there and took the beating and took it and took it because I was beat. Something happened that night that had never happened before. And the next morning, my last conscious thought was, I wonder if I'll feel this way in the morning when I get up. And I did. When I got up, I, I was through. I was absolutely done. I could not live another day like this. And had I had a crystal ball that said, if you just drink like this one more month or six more months, you'll be dead. I would have done it. My fear was that I was going to continue to live in this just absolute miserable existence, spiraling further and further down, and I was going to live another year or another two years or another five years. And I cried out to a God that I didn't even necessarily believe in, and I said, please, God, make this stop or kill me. And I became willing to do whatever it took to stay sober. And if that meant going to Alcoholics Anonymous... And doing all the goofy stuff that they suggested, even though it seemed to have no relevance whatsoever with my problems and my drinking problem, um, I was willing to do it. And so I went to the Alcoholics Anonymous. They uh, told me to go to 90 meetings in 90 days, get a sponsor, get a big book, start working the steps, start calling other alcoholics, get service commitments, and start doing this thing. And I did it all. I read the big book on a daily basis. I went to a meeting every day. I got a sponsor. I got a list of numbers. Of people to call. I wasn't too sure how the potlucks were going to keep me sober, but uh, I went to those also. And um, and I just, did, I just did as they did. I couldn't afford to fight one more thing. For instance, the Lord's Prayer seemed to bother me. But I noticed that the people that were staying sober were holding hands and saying the Lord's Prayer. And so whether I liked it or not, I held hands and said the Lord's Prayer. I couldn't afford to fight that either. And, uh, and so I, I did those things. And... Um, I was in kind of a tough love group uh, in Southern Oregon. Um, Some of the groups down there, some of the, you folks might know some of the people that started some of the groups down there, like uh, Don Pila and Otto Willem and Marianne Willem and a lot of people from Southern California. And uh, there was some very, very good groups down there. But they were kind of a tough love group. And they would say things like, it seemed as though when I was heading for my fourth cup of coffee in the middle of the meeting and uh, kind of knocking chairs and stuff over, they'd say things like, and if you're new, sit down. Shut up, take the cotton out of your ears, stick it in your mouth, and listen. And I would always think to myself, yeah, sit down, whoever they're talking to. And, uh, and it, was, it was only a few years later that I realized that I was the only newcomer there. And uh, but at the time, I was like, yeah, my God, I got 30 days. I'm not a newcomer. Um, but I, uh, what I did is I did the first three steps. At 44 days sober, I had an anxiety attack and ended up in the hospital because I thought I was having a heart attack, or I was hoping it was a heart attack because I knew really what was happening was I was going crazy, because all that ism had bubbled to the surface. I no longer had 10 drinks or a certain amount of alcohol to anesthetize all this feelings of apartness and sense of impending doom and anxiety and fear and depression and and I, God, I suffered from depression. I mean, dark, dark depression, and then panic attacks and anxiety attacks. I never had a panic attack until I got sober. And uh, at 44 days, I had that. And and man, I thought I had two problems. I thought I had, I was an alcoholic, and I was crazy. And I would lay in bed at night after this in a fetal position, saying the Lord's prayer and what other uh, other prayer I could think of over and over, just knowing that I was going to be institutionalized at any time. Now. In hindsight, the problem was, is I hadn't got into the steps past step three. That's all I had done. I was doing all of the activity, but I wasn't taking the program of action. And uh, just to give you an idea of my mindset, I also was enrolled in college at the time. And, of course, I was taking psychology, uh, you know, like all good recovering alcoholics that go back to college and are going to become a, you know, a therapist or something. And uh, in a way... I was in this class, and it was a big auditorium class, and it was about 150 people or so in there, and we were learning about stress, and, we, and the uh, professor, who was three and a half years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, gave us this exam, and it was similar to like the MMPI. It was, you know, this real lengthy te- thing on stress and, you know, all those questions, uh, and, um, and I was honest, and I took this thing, and, and we self-graded it, and uh, after we had graded it, the uh, professor said, okay. Who here scored between 0 and 25? About 10% of the class raised their hand. And, and uh, he said, okay. Uh, he goes, you folks, really, you, you know, stress is like water off a duck's back for you guys. You guys just don't have stress. You just process it very well. Who scored between 25 and 50? Majority of the class raised their hand. And he said, you guys are average. You don't have any significant events going on in your life. You process stress normally, so forth, blah, blah, blah. Who scored between 50 and 75? The remainder of the class, the majority of the remainder of the class raised their hand. And he said, you guys have some light stress in your life, you know, maybe midterms or, you know, you just don't process stress as well as some people, etc. and so forth. Who scored between 75 and 100? And there's like five brave souls that raised their hand. And, and uh, he said, you guys have some significant event in your life that's happened. You know, maybe you've moved, you've gone through a divorce, or, you know, you just don't process stress very well. Now, I was sitting there, and my score was 146. Uh, LAUGHTER and uh, he said, who scored between 100 and 125? You know, and of course, nobody, including myself, raised their hand. Who scored above 125? Nobody, including me. I didn't raise my hand. And uh, he said, good. He goes, because those people that score above 125 are generally institutionalized or locked up in federal penitentiaries. <laughs> and, uh, and so that kind of concerned me. So after... Uh, after the uh class was over i went down and i said i said doctor i i scored 146 and he said something along the lines of uh of like this he said chris what you suffer from is untreated alcoholism anybody in their first year of sobriety would score 146 on this test do your fourth step and um uh, <laughs> and so you know i uh uh, got a little bit of relief uh, from hearing that and of course uh, didn't do anything about it for a while and uh, About a month later. I found myself calling another member of alcoholics anonymous This guy had about a year and a half sober and he had not he wasn't really aware of what it talks about in the book He didn't know that it said things like that we're maladjusted to, or some of us are maladjusted to life full flight from reality outright mental defectives that the problem centers in our minds in our thinking that we had causes and conditions and that alcohol is just a symptom and I called him up, and before I say this, I want to say that uh, this is not an indictment uh, against anybody who takes anti-anxiety medication or antidepressants. This is just purely my experience. This is what happened to me. But I called this guy up and I said, you know, Jesus, I'm having this anxiety tag. you know, gotten this sense of impending doom, and I can barely function. I can barely, you know, get it together every day, and I'm nine months sober or something. I said, and he said, what you have is something other than alcoholism. What you need to do is go see a professional and get on some anti-anxiety medication to take care of this. And I hung up that phone and I hit another bottom similar to the one that I came into Alcoholics Anonymous because I thought I had a solution. I thought that when people were talking about the freedom from bondage of self and being rocketed into a fourth dimension and that fears fall from us, I thought that that was going to work as a result of doing these steps. And here I had a member of Alcoholics Anonymous One more time telling me that I need to go and anesthetize my feelings and emotions And I hit a bottom and I thought my next thought was I'm not going to do that I am not going to take anything. I have done that. I have drank a certain amount of alcohol to not feel And to behave a certain way all my life. I'm not about to go medicate myself again Instead what I'm going to do is I'm going to work steps 4 through 12 exactly as they're outlined in the big book And when I get to step 12 if I still feel this way, then I'm going to commit suicide and um I always, always amazes me that people think that's funny. <laughs> but, uh, so I started in. I did a fourth step, and this group, one of the things they had to do is they had you write an autobiography, because it says in the big book that you have to tell somebody all your life story. And I did the resentment list, I did the fears list, and it was a really rough fourth step. I mean, my columns, uh, you know, weren't perfect and all that stuff, but what it was from the heart, and it was the truth, and my deep, dark secrets and everything were there, and, uh, and I put it all down. I put everything. I was completely thorough. I got together with my sponsor and uh, to read my fifth step. And one thing that he did that was very important is he started off by telling me his deep, dark secrets before I even started to read anything. And right away, the magic of the fifth step started to happen because, once again, I identified. I thought I was one of the only living, free people Freed, not being institutionalized, that had done some of the things that I had done. And yet here was another member of Alcoholics Anonymous sharing a lot of similar things that he had done in his deep, dark secrets. And um, I did the fifth step. Halfway through, or three-quarters of the way through that fifth step, I went into the restroom, and one of the habits that I had gotten into throughout my life when I wasn't drinking, I didn't need to do this when I was drinking, so it was only when I wasn't drinking, is I'd go to the mirror, and somewhere deep in my soul, uh, I would uh, I would either tear myself this emotion would come up, this discomfort would come up, and I would tear myself down or build myself up based on this emotion. and when I built myself up, I was fleeting, I mean, because I felt like a loser, you know, seconds after building myself up. I did this fifth step, three quarters of the way through. I went to the restroom, turned to the mirror uh, to do my normal thing of uh, going through this litany of stuff that I did, and um, I had no reaction and I sat there and I looked at myself in the mirror. And I couldn't feel, that normal reaction wasn't happening. And I was like, what, what, what is this that I'm feeling? And then it dawned on me, for the first time in my life, without alcohol, I was feeling comfort. It would, I was comfortable in my own skin for the first time to my recollection without those ten drinks in my system. And that is what made me a believer in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, you know, I didn't believe this stuff was going to work because you guys told me it was. I, believed it, I only started to believe that it would work once I did it and it actually did work. I didn't even know on page 75 that it talks to these all these promises in between steps five and six, which is exactly what I was experiencing, give or take a little. And, um, and I started getting comfortable in my own skin. And, uh, and that was my reaction to, um, life after that. And I, when I did six and seven and eight and nine, I mean, it motivated, motivated me to really entrench my life in this program and really get on it. And, uh, you know, my life just began to unfold. You know, fears were taken away, character defects were taken away, some almost to their entirety, uh, with some remainder residual left over, and some just enough of the power was taken off that I could walk around a free man and continue to work on that stuff. Um, through, uh, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and working the steps and, and, uh, and doing the suggestions and really making this a design for living for me, not just going to meetings, but actually living the principles in the in the first 164 pages of the book, I had all sorts of remarkable changes. I was somebody that was terrified of people. At three two and a half years sober, I became a stockbroker. I became a stockbroker through an intuitive thought where um, I had uh, come to the conclusion that all my life I was afraid to participate in anything because I was afraid of looking bad or afraid of losing. And not, and not being the absolute best. So I quit. I wouldn't participate. Unless I was assured, absolute guaranteed that I would be the number one person in that, And I wouldn't do it. And, I, and through an intuitive thought through uh, doing this stuff, I realized that for me, that's ordinary people succeed based on winning and losing. For me, just stepping up to the plate and swinging the bat is success. Participating in life is success. Forgetting whether I win or lose, that's, that's for normal people. For me, just showing up and participating regardless of what happens is the success. With that motive, I went in and I became a stockbroker. A couple of years later, I started my own brokerage firm. Today, I have uh, uh, my partner and I own a stock brokerage firm headquartered in Portland. And uh, that doesn't happen to guys like me. Guys that are afraid of the people walking down the street, you know, um, that, ha- you know that has to cross the street to avoid eye contact with somebody. And yet, I'm doing these things as a result of living this program uh, as what it says, a design for living. Um, at uh, five and a half years sober, I got married, and that was uh, you know, as a result of uh, a surrender, and I won't go through the entire story, but uh, it was right up here in uh, uh, Huntington Beach uh, that I met my wife, which I'd known before, but... Um, and as a result of turning my relationship life over to the hands of God and just doing my job in Alcoholics Anonymous and so forth, through a series of coincidences, my wife, uh, we ended up getting together and getting married. And we have been married just shy a couple weeks of uh, 13 years. And, um, you know, a guy like me, you know, who drank to oblivion on a daily basis, that fought cops, that woke up in drunk tanks, that had DTs, you know. I'm in a relationship with a woman for 13 years. As she also is a... Uh, very good member of Alcoholics Anonymous and somebody who is uh you know really doing the deal and that's uh you know those are the kind of things that uh that uh, that absolutely don't happen to people like me uh, if it wasn't for this program you know as a result of this program, I am a participant in life today I am absolutely a participant I have a toolbox to overcome any fear which you know fear is always my you know my thing that gets me and um and so I'm able to get out there and live. I I do subscribe to what was uh what I've heard said where that as a result of having the disease of alcoholism and being forced into the steps of this program that I am better off today than I had I not never had the disease in the first place. And I believe that for me. I am I am better off than having never had the disease. I love Alcoholics Anonymous and I and I love the principles and and the actions and the way of life. I want to just lastly talk a little bit about what happened to me at um, seven years. About six years of sobriety, um, you know, I was always taught that the first nine steps are the surrender steps and the 10, 11, and 12 are the living steps. And I got a little bit away from that 10th step and uh, and at six years. And then by the time I was seven years, I was a long ways away from that 10th step. And my program had started to kind of become maybe less of a priority. Whereas I had all these remarkable changes in my life, you know, and, and just the way I perceived people and, and everything. Um, yet I was starting to drift away. Just very subtly. Nothing, it wasn't like I just disappeared from meetings. But I, I had moved to Portland and, and in Portland they didn't have the same kind of meetings that they had in southern Oregon. It was primarily discussion groups and seemed very group therapy therapist and, and I didn't like it and I used that as an excuse to not go to the meetings and I you know and um and not that I still don't like those kinds of meetings but um I used that as an excuse to quit coming back. And little by little I got away from the things that, that gave me a life and gave me sobriety. And um I hit a bottom at about seven, seven and a half years sober and And, I mean, I was every bit as miserable as I was when I first came in. The depression was back. The anxiety was back. The fear was back. The resentment and hate was back. The feelings of being different than and apart from and not good enough and all that stuff was completely back into my life. And the cunning, baffling, powerful thing about my alcoholism in that situation is my head says there must be – what is the solution – it must be something different than it originally was because I've got seven and a half years. Because I have seven and a half years, it's something different than what it was when I had one year or two years. And luckily I had a uh, kind of a moment of clarity and I thought, you know, this is where people, there's two paths. One one group of people go down that path saying the solution's got to be something different. The other group of people say, no, it's exactly what it was when I got here, when I had 30 days. And I took that and I entrenched my life back into Alcoholics Anonymous. I went back into through the steps. I went to meetings all the time. I started, you know, I, one more time putting Alcoholics Anonymous as my priority. And the thing is, is that that was kind of scary about that, is I thought that maybe after uh, a couple of weeks of going to meetings and doing a little bit of step work that I'd be right back where I was. And that wasn't the case. It took a full year of work to get to a place to where I was prior to going down that path. And, uh, and that's, uh, you know, and, and once again, my life is completely full as a result of doing that. And, um, and that's one of the things that I have to be cautious of today is, is that when I am, when I have a little anxiety or a little depression or sadness or whatever it is, something you know something that's bothering me. I have to get back to that tenth stuff. I mean, I got to be working with other people, and I got to be doing the eleventh stuff. But I get, to get back to that tenth stuff and see what it is that I'm not. You know, what's unresolved in my life? What resentments am I not taking care of? What fears am I not taking care of? What amends do I owe? Where have I rationalized amends because it's because I still have that mind that when I have anxiety today, I think it's got to be the solution has got to be different than what it was originally. And for me, the solution is exactly the same as it was when I was a newcomer. I've learned everything I need to know in Alcoholics Anonymous in my first year. There's no graduate level course for me. The basic stuff is what works for me. And I have to keep going back to that and keep staying in the middle of that. And I have to surround myself with other members of Alcoholics Anonymous that are like-minded because those people that aren't like-minded are dangerous to me. They are people that can send me down a different path. And they may be able to live comfortably going down a different path, but it could absolutely kill me. So I'm very grateful to be sober. And, uh, and, and just in closing, before we do the questions and answers, I want to uh, close with a couple sayings that I really like. And that is, Alcoholics Anonymous is not for those that need it. Alcoholics Anonymous is not for those that want it. Alcoholics Anonymous is for those that do it, and also, uh, and my my absolute favorite little saying is, uh, is that I have two choices today: I can live a self-centered life and suffer the consequences, or a God-centered life and suffer the consequences. So, thanks. <laughs> If you have a question for our speaker, please raise your hand and wait to be called on. Okay. Questions? Uh, yes, a question was uh, in regard to the way that I sponsor. Is there anything in particular that I do that has been successful with uh, the guys I sponsor, right? Um, I have a list of rules that, uh, that they absolutely have to do or I will not sponsor them. They have to go to a minimum of three meetings a week. They have to read three pages out of the big book every day. They have to have a home group. They have to have a service commitment in that home group. They have to call me once a week. And they have to do the steps out of the big book. And uh, I may be forgetting a couple other. I haven't written down. (laughs) But um, outside of that, all I do is share my experience with them. Anything is just purely based on my experience. I'm not somebody that really rules. I'm not somebody that, um, that tells people what to do and uh And the reason being is that uh m- me personally, I don't do very well when people tell me what to do, but when somebody that I respect shares their experience, I'll listen to it all day long and will take action on it so um I do have some minimum requirements because i just I have too many people that I sponsor and too many other people that I may be able to help that if I'm not going to sit there and spend hours on the phone with somebody that's going to one meeting a week, it's almost pointless. Do the basic work first. And then we can talk, and then we can talk about, you know, my experience. But I will not talk to them until they're doing at least that. Thanks. The question was, did I have family that came up in my eighth and ninth step? And uh, yes, I did have family that came up in my eighth and ninth step. And uh, in my original eighth and ninth step, um, I did, and I did. I don't remember making direct amends to my mother, I don't remember sitting down with her and doing anything. And I'm not that concerned whether I, I'm sure I did, but um, I'm not concerned whether I did or not. Because the, the two most useless words I could have said to my mother would have been, I'm sorry. What I did and the, the, the way that I lived and the way that I treated my mother after getting to the ninth step was far more important than anything I could have ever said to her.